0: This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Creative Curve How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time by Alan Gannett. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 5 What is a Genius? Charles Darwin was panicked. The now elderly, wealthy naturalist reread the letter he'd gotten from a younger scientist, Alfred Wallace a man he knew came from a humble background with only six years of formal education in a one room schoolhouse in Hertfordshire, a largely agricultural city in Southern England. Darwin himself began his scientific career at age 22 as a gentleman naturalist. His father was a doctor and one of his grandfathers had written Zoonomia, an early book in the field of biology. His family was well and educated Darwin subsequently earned a university degree, benefiting from exposure to more progressive intellectuals, many of whom questioned the rigid scientific norms of the 19th century. But as we shall see, Wallace held the upper hand in this moment. After college, one of Darwin's professors recommended young Charles for a position as an onboard naturalist for the HMS Beagle as it voyaged to South America. Hungry for adventure, Darwin applied for it and got the job. For the next five years, he traveled the world on the beagle. He spent much of that time trying to maintain a detailed diary. His periods on the ocean were punctuated by months or weeks on land, exploring the beautiful South American wilds. During the voyage, Darwin found himself visiting the Galapagos Islands. Seeing the differences among mockingbirds, he realized that the birds differed based on the particular island they inhabited. Legend has it that Darwin had an epiphany in thinking about the birds, and the theory of natural selection came to him in a light bulb moment. At least, that was the story I was taught in my eighth grade science class, along with many generations of middle school students. In truth, however, Darwin simply noticed that there were mockingbirds with different features. His response was mere surprise. There was no light bulb moment as to why the differences existed, no dramatic revelations occurred. His development of the natural selection concept wouldn't take place for several more years. Returning to England, Darwin labored to turn his ship diary into a book, The Voyage of the Beagle. It was published in 1839 and made Darwin a celebrity scientist, a 19th century Neil deGrasse Tyson. The book sparked a frenzy of interest around the specimens Darwin collected. He regaled audiences with the stories of his adventures and his celebrity continued to increase. It wasn't until 1842 that Darwin began to put together his theory of natural selection. He had been reflecting on his specimens for years and had finally come to his revolutionary conclusion. There was only one problem. At that point, Darwin was a highly regarded member of the scientific establishment. He was a member of both the Athenaeum Club, a coveted private association, and the Royal Society, the elite scientific association of his era. Despite his only rebellious nature, he nonetheless enjoyed the fame and fortune that accompanied his scientific standing. And he knew that if he publicized the latest theory, he would be labeled a heretic, or at worst, ostracized from society. At the time, science was subservient to God. Evolution would mean that God hadn't made Earth's creatures in a sudden flash. Darwin kept quiet about his theory, though over the years he discreetly told a few friends about it. In the 1850s, his friends encouraged Darwin to publicize his theory. In response, Darwin started to write his book. In poor health and in self-imposed exile at his country house, Darwin spent his time in sparse energy writing. On June 18th of 1958, the nine page letter from Alfred Wallace showed up in the mail. Wallace's first career was as a surveyor where he learned how to note and record details. Finding himself unemployed in 1848, he made the decision to travel to Brazil as an unpaid naturalist. Upon his return, Wallace published his findings and gained a small following in scientific circles. The minor fame followed Wallace to obtain funding for a longer, bigger expedition, eight years traveling through the islands of the Philippines and Indonesia. On this trip, he concluded that the population explosions of certain species could eventually lead to overcrowding and survival of the fittest, the foundation of natural selection. The concept excited him too, but he knew he needed feedback from other scientists. Wallace knew Darwin professionally. Over the years they had corresponded and Wallace had gone so far as to send Darwin a few of his specimens. He decided to put his ideas on the origin of species to Darwin in a letter. As Darwin was far better known, Wallace felt that Darwin might offer valuable perspective. When the letter showed up in Darwin's mailbox, the older scientist had already written 250,000 words of his book on natural selection. The book still wasn't complete. He wanted it to be so evidence-rich that no one could deny its argument. But when Darwin opened Wallace's letter, he knew immediately that his great discovery was in peril. Concerned about his reputation, but not wanting to violate the gentlemanly norms of the Victorian era, he sent his work in Wallace's letter to his prominent scientist friends Asking what he should do. They came up with a compromise. They they would present a paper on natural selection that combined both Darwin's and Wallace's ideas at the Linnaean Society, a prominent scientific association. There was one problem Wallace never agreed to this compromise. He was somewhere out in the Pacific Ocean and couldn't be reached. Darwin and Wallace had experienced what academics term simultaneous invention a state of affairs where two or more individuals independently come to the very same discovery or conclusion. History is peppered with examples of simultaneous invention. Joseph Swan and Thomas Edison both received American patents for the incandescent light bulb in 1880. And Alicia Gray and Alexander Graham Bell both patented the telephone on the same exact day, March 7, 1876. In the case of natural selection, the story is even more complicated. Not only did Wallace discover it at the same time Darwin did, but ancient Greek philosophers described something similar thousands of years earlier. Born in 99 D.C. or B.C., Lucretius, a poet and philosopher who, legend has it, died from the side effects of a supposed love potion, wrote a collection of poems in which he describes the survival of the fittest, a critical element of natural selection. Quote, And in the ages after monsters died, pre-force there perished many a stock, unable, by propagation to forge a progeny. For whatsoever creatures thou beholdest, breathing the breath of life, the same have been, even from their earliest age preserved alive, by cunning, or by valor, or at least by speed of foot or wing. And many a stock remaineth yet, because of use to man." End quote. All this is to say that nearly 2,000 years before Darwin and Wallace, the Greeks had come up with a rudimentary theory of natural selection, as Darwin even acknowledges in the introduction to his book, saying, quote, "...but it is very far from true that the principle is a modern discovery. I could give several references to works of high antiquity in which the full importance of the principle is acknowledged. Explicit rules are laid down by some of the Roman classical writers." End quote. History is full of simultaneous inventions, yet, as is often the case, only one of the creators of natural selection is remembered as a genius. Constructing Genius When Darwin died, he was given a state funeral and buried in Westminster Abbey. When Alfred Wallace died, his life was commemorated with a small plaque, also in the Abbey. While they both discovered the theory of natural selection, Wallace is mostly forgotten. The British Natural History Museum recently struggled to raise money for a statue of Alfred Wallace, whereas Darwin is on every schoolchild's lips. What did Gar- Darwin do to garner recognition as a genius? Part of the answer rests in what Wallace didn't do. As Darwin was racing to finish his book, Wallace continued to explore islands. Darwin published his opus in 1859, three years before Wallace came back from sea. The book captured the attention of the masses and began to solidify Darwin's reputation. When Wallace returned, he focused much of his time and energy on progressive politics. He was an active feminist and also evangelized against eugenics. Unfortunately, this made him lose stature among the scientific establishment and some scientists who treated him as an outsider. What's more, Wallace deferred to Darwin in a way that seems absurd in retrospect. In writing his own book about natural selection, Wallace went so far as to title his book after his rival, titled Darwinism, an exposition of the theory of natural selection with some of Its applications. One Darwin historian later explained in an interview, quote, he felt glad to be accepted as a partner, albeit a junior partner in this great discovery. It seems to be more than he would have hoped for, and he was very glad to settle for it, End quote. That said, the story of Darwin and Wallace illustrates a critical point in our understanding of creativity. Genius is, perhaps surprisingly, a far from an objective label. For someone to be considered a creative genius, their innovation has to be accepted by the masses. A novelist who writes a riveting book but can't get it published is not remembered by history. The modest scientist who doesn't publicize himself or herself is soon forgotten. The truth is that when people talk about creativity, they are usually talking about a creative input that is widely adopted or accepted. Think Steve Jobs or Pablo Picasso. Of course, this is different from the ability to come up with novel ideas. Put slightly differently, a person's work has to be accepted by other people to garner the creative label, and by even larger numbers of people for a person to be labeled a creative genius. Creative genius, it turns out, is a social phenomenon rather than simply a reflection of how innovative, forward-thinking, or influential any one person is. On a Hill Quote, As a teenager, I lived on the giancolo Hill in Rome, overlooking Michelangelo's great dome. During this time, my father, a redoubtable amateur art historian, made sure to point out to me the flowering of Renaissance creativity that surrounded us. I believed him, but I must confess that those masterpieces by and large made no impression on me. Some of them did produce an uncanny sense of serenity. Others conveyed a great sense of power or an undefinable excitement. But creativity... The great breakthroughs of Western art all looked equally old and decrepit to me. To think of them as innovations seemed a silly convention, end quote. The words above echo something that perhaps we have all felt at one point, and maybe still do. Maybe as a kid you were dragged to an art museum by your parents, or as part of an ambitious field trip in middle school. You stood in front of a painting, confused. Why is this in a museum? It doesn't seem remarkable. Or perhaps you saw a work of abstract art and thought to yourself, I can do that. The author of the above passage is Professor Mihaly csuzsk He is known for his best-selling book, Flow, which popularized the notion of getting into the flow, and for his TED Talk on the topic, which has over 4 million views to date. For students of creative history, he also provides one of the most complete explanations for how things get labeled as creative. Sit- Let me try this again. Sitja Mihaly looks like a weathered Santa Claus who exudes not jolliness, but a reassuring zen-like quality. In fact, he could be Santa Claus's professorial cousin. In my interview with him, he explained to me the critical elements of the social phenomenon of creativity. Creativity is surprisingly hard to identify, he writes, and gives an example. Quote, an unusual African mask might seem the product of creative genius until we realized that the same mask has been carved exactly the same way for centuries. End quote. How does something get labeled as creative? Chichamahaly says three elements come together to create this label. Element one, subject matter. First, there is what... Si- Chisholm and Haley calls the domain, or what I call subject matter. In most, if not all mediums, these are the norms, practices, and previous creative outputs that are regarded as standards. For example, if we are talking about Catholicism, Chisholm and Haley told me that the subject matter would include the New Testament, the Old Testament, and the major contributions of the Fathers of the Church. It also includes the responsibilities that a Catholic a Christian would have to follow in order to be saved. Or consider the composition of classical music. Here the subject matter includes the musical notes themselves, advan- examples of past successful symphony- symphonies, and the standards of composition. Any creative classical composer needs to be familiar with all of these. To create something novel, you must know what already exists. Obviously, This presents an obstacle for people who seek acknowledgement as creative individuals. First, they have to learn the standards and the norms of their craft. I'll explain how they do this in future chapters. Second, their work has to somehow become part of this formal subject matter. If you're a painter, for example, you must get into prestigious galleries, museums, and textbooks. Otherwise, your work is far less likely to be considered creative. It will be seen as merely new and or experimental. Timing is also necessary. Two paintings created in two different eras could yield wildly different results. If Andy Warhol had painted his pop art in the Italian Renaissance, he likely would have been labeled a heretic. If Leonardo da Vinci had painted a classical work during the time of pop art, he would have been seen as creating dated, yet technically precise, art. Interestingly, but hardly creative or revolutionary. The artistic ground, That artistic ground has already been broken hundreds of years earlier. Timing is essential to getting your work and you labeled creative. In the following chapters, I will explain how you can learn to leverage the timing of trends to your advantage. A thorough understanding of the subject matter allows anyone to understand the familiar baseline of their medium. But how do you get your work to become part of the subject matter? Element number two, gatekeepers. Chizan Mahaley calls those who decide what constitutes the subject matter a type of creativity in the field. I use the term gatekeepers. These gatekeepers are responsible for deciding what is creative and has value and what doesn't. In art, the gatekeepers include gallery owners, art critics, and museum curators. In pop music, they are the managers, producers, and record label executives. For restaurants, it is the reviewer, other chefs, and nowadays, thanks to applications like Yelp, consumers. If you are a painter who never commands the attention of a gatekeeper, unfortunately, you are just another aspiring wannabe, not a creative genius. For better or for worse, the gatekeepers decide what has value and what will be labeled creative. For this reason, gatekeepers are a notorious challenge for creative people. Chisholm Mahaley explained to me that often an industry gatekeeper doesn't want to creatively christen anyone new. In the world of startups, for example, venture capitalists may decide that there are too many Uber or Lyft clones already and decline to fund a new ride-sharing service. Even if a fledgling company has the potential to become a strong competitor of Uber, it may not be possible to raise the necessary capital to compete. If you cannot attract the attention of the gatekeepers, you might very well be original and technically skilled, but the truth of the matter is that you will not be considered creative. As Chisint Mahaley points out, in ancient times, a painter's standing was subject to the whims of kings and popes. Today, the group that comprises gatekeepers can be much larger, as the internet has created a more democratic, less stringent set of gatekeepers. For example, consider the world of romance novels. Kristen Ashley is one of the queens of self-publishing. She has published 57 books to date, selling over two and a half million copies. She is one of the most prolific romance novelists in the world, and is the poster child for how ebooks have transformed the genre. The romance novel has traditionally had its own set of gatekeepers, traditional book publishers, that prevented certain books from ever seeing the light of day. Inevitably, this slowed the pace of new voices and subjects. However, in 2007, Amazon launched Kindle Direct Publishing. This program made it easier for authors to self publish, and what's more, Amazon would give them a 70% royalty on every copy sold. Almost overnight, the entire romance genre changed. Now, any author could get virtual distribution. By 2013, 61% of romance book sales were from ebooks. The market had turned digital. This meant that authors like Kristen Ashley, many of whom had been snubbed by the traditional gatekeepers of publishing, could finally get their voices heard. Very suddenly, new subgenres in the romance category began bubbling up. For example, Queer, Lesbian, and Trans Romance. As Kristen Ashley explained to me, quote, With the independent publishing rage right now, these people are also telling their own stories. There is a lot of empowerment of women going on with these books, end quote. While the internet has changed the form of gatekeepers, there is an essential ingredient for fostering creativity, prosperity. Consumers cannot spend time attending art galleries or buying books or records if they do not have discretionary time and income. Universities and research teams need to win grants to conduct new research. Musicians need audiences that are willing to pay for music and concerts. A country's material wealth and the economic confidence of its natives is an unspoken enabler of creativity. So, creativity blossoms whenever the economy grows— The Italian Renaissance was as much a golden age of the Italian economy as it was a golden era of art, as well-heeled families, such as the Medici, rose to power. It wasn't just royalty and the church that could afford to commission new art. Now, traders and merchants found themselves with more money to spend. Element number three, the individual. The third essential element of creativity is the individual. While most of the literature on creativity focuses on the individual, no one exists in a vacuum. No matter what they do, creators first need to live in a place where the economy supports their efforts. Next, they need to know how to create projects that fit the zeitgeist. It perhaps goes without saying that they also need to create something that is technically proficient. Finally, they must successfully reach and persuade the gatekeepers of their profession to christen them as creative. According to chisholm Mahaley, not only do individuals need to be technically talented, but they also require a set of practical attributes that allow them to engage with the media, consumers, and gatekeepers. Part of being a successful artist is being a persuasive salesperson for your own brand. You must be able to generate and capture attention. This goes against the notion of of the reclusive and angry artist. Chisholm Mahaley conducted a famous study where he tested and interviewed art students, then tracked their careers over the next few years. What he found was that in school, the students who were the most highly regarded were also the ones who matched the accepted stereotype of the irreverent neurotic genius. But in the real world of art, these students, unable to sell themselves or their wares, floundered. Chisholm Mahaley notes, quote, The young artists who left their mark on the world of art tended to be those who, in addition to originality, also had the ability to communicate their vision to the public, often resorting to public relations tactics that would have been abhorrent in the pure atmosphere of the art school." Personal resources can also play a large unseen role in one's success. If you have access to private education, you will have a far greater chance of getting into a great university with access to future gatekeepers. If your family has money to pay for violin lessons, there is a much higher likelihood that you could become a world-class violin player. Early lessons could could give you years to develop an interest and skill, as well as an advantage over other students, which would only compound over time. The individual also has to be accepted within the system. If you are an outsider or are marginalized in some way, it is traditionally more difficult to gain access to gatekeepers. Chisint Mahaley found that during their school years, women and men had the same degree of creative potential. But 20 years later, when he followed up on his original study, not one of the women had become well-known, whereas numerous male study subjects had gained both stature and celebrity. As Chisint Mahaley wrote, quote, Until quite recently, the majority of scientific advances were made by men who had the means and the leisure, clergymen like Copernicus, tax collectors like Lavoisier, or physicians like Galvani, men who could afford to build their own laboratories and concentrate on their thoughts. The result is that when you study the history of creative geniuses, you find people who had the opportunity to learn the right skills, the time to master those skills, and the ability to persuade others that their work had value. This helps pave the way for the gatekeepers to access the work of these aspiring geniuses and add it to the established subject matter or canon, which the mainstream population then looks to as the definition of what should be deemed creative. All these elements, the subject matter, the gatekeepers, and the individual, have to align for an individual or a work to merit the label creative. Susan Mahaley subdu- sums it up in his writing saying, quote, originality, freshness of perceptions, divergent thinking ability are all well and good in their own right as desirable personal traits. But without some form of public recognition, they do not constitute creativity and certainly not genius. This is all a roundabout way of reminding us that creativity and genius are social phenomena, As we've learned, with the right training, most people can learn the technical skills that are needed to create high-quality work as Jonathan Hardesty did. Yet training alone will not make a person's work creative and will not admit them to the pantheon of artists. People must also receive public recognition, and crucial to that recognition is timing. You need to be producing or creating work at the moment when both resources exist and gatekeepers are interested. So in addition to honing your salesmanship skills and maneuvering yourself into an environment that supports your creative field, you need to have the right idea at the right time. If Paul McCartney had written, Yesterday in 1885, one has to wonder whether anyone would have cared. Yesterday would have come across as too different. If J.K. Rowling had written Harry Potter in 1650, no one may have read it and she may have been burned at the stake. If timing is essential, can we learn how to master that? Is there a way to engage in purposeful practice to improve our timing? Surprisingly, the answer is yes. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.